0: Defining exactly what Zakia Soul does for a living can be a tricky business, as I found out recently when we met for this podcast at the NTS Studios in Dalston, East London. She's a club DJ, but also a radio presenter at NTS, where she was originally a producer. But she first got her start in the industry working at Notting Hill's iconic record store, Honest John's. When she's not doing all of these things, she also writes and produces documentaries, primarily for Radio 4, but also other platforms too, covering a wide variety of subjects, ranging from the Sabah drummers of Senegal, examining what is taste, through to the history of UK Garage. Her polymathic leanings are examined in this discussion, alongside radio and club DJing, the acquisition of knowledge at Honest John's, and her connection to Wales. My first question is about taste. Now, you, you did a, a series about taste, which was fascinating and um, and also occasionally infuriating. <laughs> um, that, that bloke from Wigmore Hall was like just, he, he kind of drove me mad. Um, <laughs> so I'm wondering what your feelings are about taste because obviously you navigate that with a fairly... Not a neutral view, but but you're kind of the the moderator, effectively. So, what, what are your feelings about taste? How important are they in DJing, for example?
1: Well, I think the series sort of starts off with this idea, or this hope, maybe a naive sort of view that taste is this sort of innocent kind of um, reflection of of who we are, and I think that stamp stems largely in me from this, you know, my musical taste and this idea that my musical taste is shaped by my family, my kind of experiences at school and at college, by the people that I've met, the communities that I have encountered. So in that sense, they're kind of, they're a sort of, my taste is a story of who I am and where I've been. So that's quite a nice idea. Um, But then throughout the sort of making of the series, there are these sort of revelations that obviously taste is not that simple. It's not that innocent. It's not a kind of a mirror, um, a kind of, you know, a a truthful um, reflection of your innermost essence. It's actually... You know, very much sort of controlled by and shaped by these external forces of class and race and 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 uh, sort of value and and um, what's the word and what's the word for money? <laughs> money. Um, so uh, so it kind of ended on the series thinking, well, mm, maybe we should be a bit more careful about taste. Maybe taste isn't actually as in, as innocent as it seems to be, and maybe taste is a kind of it's a form of soft power of, of sort of controlling people, of letting people, certain people in and others out. Um, so I think, I think it's sort of both things at once. It's, it's, it can be lovely and I do pride myself on my taste, although I also some doubt, sometimes doubt it. Um, but I think thinking about the way that taste operates in society is kind of very important, especially in a time of, you know, looking at the, that's these sort of oppressive systems and structures that have sort of shaped society for a long time.
0: So what, what, what do you feel about, I mean, the, the thing is, if you're a DJ, you think you've got good taste. You have to think that you've got good <laughs> taste because you're imposing your taste on, on the people around you. So, you know, is that, what, what were the things that first drove you to, to DJ?
1: Well, just to answer the, the sort of go back to that first thing you were mentioning, you know, taste as a DJ. I think that when I used to do my old show on NTS, um, questing, you know, I was coming. You know, I used to work in a record shop called Honest John's. We interviewed um, Alan, who runs it, in the in the in the program. And Honest John's is a kind of a temple of high taste, you know, for the jazzers, for the reggae heads um, and, and and more. So my when I did that show, it was very much in that sensibility of sort of like rarefied, you know, deep cuts, things that people maybe, you know, I wouldn't play pop music on there, for example. Since doing The Breakfast Show, it's sort of challenged my, my belief in my own taste. So it sort of opened things up, but things have become a bit more blurred and it's harder for me to tell because I'm like, okay, great, I can play whatever. I can play Tina Turner if I want to. I can play some crappy grime track from my youth but almost opening up that can of worms has, some, has sort of, um, brought about some doubt sometimes where I've kind of doubted my taste more than perhaps when I had that those sort of stricter boundaries of what I would play and what I wouldn't um, but it's also quite liberating because it means there are like you know things that the snooty part of me wouldn't have allowed myself to play in the past so I'm kind of like do you know what this is a bit crap but actually I really like the the bass line so I'm just going to play it so <laughs> Yeah, I think it's good to, I think it's good not to take yourself too seriously. But I think, you know, it's also good to have some sort of boundaries of taste in place.
0: But uh, do you you not find that, I mean, I found uh, DJing quite liberating because prior to that, I'd sort of been very stuck on having almost like a party line on on groups and acts and stuff Mm. like that that would stop me from listening to them. And what's great about uh, DJing to a dance floor is, the only thing that matters is, will this make people dance? Not, is this by Supertramp? Or <laughs> is this by Steely Dan? But will will this rock a dance floor? And, and I found that really liberating. So it kind of got rid of a lot of my prejudices.
1: Well, I think, you know, there are different types of DJs, aren't there? There are DJs who are purists and do have that kind of very hard line approach. But also, as you say, being a D- DJ, you're kind of experimenting constantly. You're sort of, you're downloading tracks, you're thinking, oh, will this, will it not? You, you get the opportunity to sort of test it out and then that informs your taste or that informs the way that you see or feel or, or hear or know the music. And I think that actually as a good D- DJ, you should constantly be, or just a lo- as a lover of music, if you're truly curious, you should always be challenging your own sort of discriminatory impulses. <laughs> and snobbishness because you know because you want to grow you want to expand your musical horizons constantly and if you sort of if you if you pen yourself in you're going to be missing out on on lot so I think it's just it's just finding that balance isn't it because you know if I said that I didn't have a music like, you know snobbish bone in my body I would be obviously lying there are many times where I go and hear DJs or listen to music and I just or things that get sent to me and I just think instantly like this is crap and we do need that sense but I think it's also good to sort of to challenge it as well.
0: Okay. I I'll take that as an answer. By the way, Steely Dan. Yes. Do you so are you a Steely Dan fan or not? I I am, but I I only became a Steely Dan fan as an adult. I I didn't grow up in a household where people were that interested in music. So so which which actually, I think in the long run, has been a good thing because I didn't feel like there was anyone telling me what to like. So I ended up liking quite a lot of different things without knowing what was good and mm. what was trendy and what wasn't trendy. But I know that in that programme about taste, you and Flo have a discussion about Steely Dan mm. and whether you should like them or not. <laughs> and I and I do get that because the, the muso element of Steely Dan is obviously off-putting for a lot of people, I think. Mm. Have you been... Newly converted to Steely Dan?
1: Yeah, I would, I would say so. And also that whole sort of realm of yacht rock and stuff. You know, a lot of people grew up with my, I grew up with sort of dad rock being played in the house. And I did, my dad was, you know, like really loved, my dad's into spiritual jazz. He's a musical snob. And, you know, I kind of, I was sort of you know brought up in that tradition so I didn't have that sort of dad rock you know vibe in the background and actually it's something that I through, through the breakfast show and probably being influenced by people like Flo and you know listening to Charlie Bones over the years and things like that it's kind of opened my open up my eyes to this music that I kind of just thought was a bit sort of naff and plodding or you know kind of like white white guys with big handle bar moustaches singing soul music and you know but actually there's some real gems in there and I think that's been another example of me kind of like having you know opening up this uh, opening up this door that had previously been sort of you know firmly locked shut and then having a lot of fun for it so whether listeners agree or not that's another question
0: (laughs) I, yeah, um, what you, you your job is fairly unusual in as much as you've you've kind of got a portfolio of things that you do. But there, I don't, I can't think of anyone else in the music industry who, who does those things in the same way that you do. Can, can you explain? How would you define your job or your career, and, and how did you come upon? doing all of these different things. So you make documentaries, you DJ in clubs, you DJ on the radio, you know, you do a lot of different things. How how did all of that happen? And how how would you define it?
1: Yeah, I guess when people ask what I do, I would sort of say DJ or on my when I, when I had sort of decide the order on my you know website or whatever, I I sort of describe myself as a DJ broadcaster and writer, and uh, that sort of encompasses the DJing that I do yeah like in clubs and festivals, the broadcasting here at NTS more kind of music oriented or music focused broadcasting and then the sort of more documentary style podcast stuff podcast style stuff that I've been doing for Radio 4 and other platforms and then the writing which is a kind of new venture but it's sort of um is interconnected how I got into it well I I feel like all throughout I'm kind of a split person or these two sort of aspects of my identity that are expressed in what I do and that is quite a sort of research scholarly kind of mind that's quite sort of rational and likes to sort of put things in order and is very sort of like, likes to go on sort of intellectual journeys. And then there's the part that's very much more creative, that's more kind of just like wants to, you know, almost the part, it's a bit kind of left brain, right brain, a bit kind of like neurotic intellectual <laughs> and then like party girl. So I guess those, are, those sort of two parts of me have been expressed through my life and in my career like when I went to university I studied English literature and at Oxford which was like a very kind of hardcore uh, brain workout and when I finished at Oxford also like very weird socially and quite difficult time for me emotionally when I finished Oxford I was like I need to just go and do something completely different so that's when I started working at Honest John's as a sort of rejection of that other part, you know, that other side, that other way of being in the world. And as time has gone on, I found more ways to sort of bring those two together. So thinking about making a radio documentary, there's obviously the analysis, there's the scholarly bit. And then there's also like, how does it sound? Like what music are we gonna put in? You know, there's that sort of more, more intuitive, creative part, which is also the part that is shared with putting a tracklist together for a show or a DJ set. So, in a way, those—that's how I see the connection between the two.
0: How was your experience at Oxford um, as a, a, a woman of color? I mean, is it really racially diverse there, or is... Or no, <laughs> no. I'm guessing it isn't, but you no. know.
1: No, no. I mean, Oxford was yeah. So I. I was very lucky at college, I had a tutor that was like, you should apply to Oxford, and I was like, all right then, and then I did, and then I got in, even though actually I just wanted to go to a party, (laughs) a party, it was like Liverpool, Leeds, Manchester, Oxford. I got in, you know, it was an amazing opportunity, and it was, yeah, it, I Looking back, I'm really grateful for the education that I got. And it really taught me a lot about Britain and about sort of history and the progression of ideas. And these are all things that I'm still kind of like working through and working with in my, in my practice. But it was challenging. I think more the class thing was the main thing. Actually, I was more acutely aware of that than my race in a weird way. I never received any like um, I, ca- I can't say that I ever received any racial discrimination. In fact, some of my white friends from like working class northern backgrounds actually got way more in your face, sort of like, really? You don't go you don't go to Oxford, like with that broad accent kind of thing. They got way more shit than I ever did. Um, but there were this sort of subtleties of class difference, like being at a house party and everyone being like, Oh what school did you go to? And I'm like uh, Spring Grove Primary School, or, well, you know, <laughs> Orleans. <laughs> like, you're not gonna know it, but there's the assumption that you're going to one of these eight prestigious public schools, or even just sort of networking at house parties. You know, you think someone's talking to you because they wanna be your friend, then you realize it's because they, they think, oh, right, well, she's doing this, and if I speak to her, then it's gonna get me here. It's kind of a playground, or a sort of to- a toy town for for the rich to practice how they're gonna go and, you know, do do things in real life. They do their practice uh, newspaper at college, and then they go on to run the Guardian. They do their practice, you know, uh, whatever. So it was, it was, it, it was tough. And I just spent a lot of my time escaping to Manchester, where my best friend was, and just you know, and partying there. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a challenging experience, I'd say.
0: How did you wind up DJing? Were you, were you messing around on turntables at, at college or, or before that, or how did that happen?
1: I guess I'd always been collecting music. I'd always been putting together weird, com- you know, combinations of, of 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 tracks, just sort of you know, as you do for yourself. And um, then when I was nineteen, actually it was I was it was um, I have to thank my ex-boyfriend at the time who I was trying to chirps, and he was into records. So my way of like texting him and getting in touch with him was like, oh, can you recommend uh, like what decks are good to get because I'm thinking about getting some. <laughs> and then a shout out to mom and dad, they bought me a pair of decks for my um, 18th birthday, and that was kind of where it all started. It was actually through that relationship, but and and he this this partner was also the one who took. Me to Honest John's for the first time and started collecting records and stuff. And then once I had records, then you sort of like, there's an urge, there's an impulse to do something with them. So there were a few like naff soul and funk nights going on in Oxford. And I had a few, I had a few sets there. And then yeah, it just kind of happened organically. I never, I don't think I ever thought that I wanted to become a DJ, but then I actually got this, um, I've got this diary from when I was a kid, from like the age of, you know, I think it's up until my second year of secondary school or something like that. And there's an entry in there probably when I'm about 10 or 11 being like, I wanna be a DJ. And I completely forgotten about it. And I'd never like it, that idea had never stuck with me, but there it was written in my child, childish handwriting. So obviously it had been there for a little while.
0: So when, when when did you start taking it seriously? How, how old were you? And um, um, what was the thing that kind of tipped you over the edge?
1: Well, when I I had a few gigs in Oxford. When I came back to London, I was working at Honest John's. I was really getting into collecting vinyl. I was taking music a bit more seriously. I was also you know, like really lucky to be in London in quite an exciting time of like lots of incredible events, lots of, I was involved, in fact, one of my first gigs was with this, uh, an, a kind of, an, a, a party called Stees, which used to happen in South London. And it was a sort of mixture of like, people do spoken word, they'd be DJs, they'd be live music. And it's actually where a lot of that, the kind of generation that became known as the like, you know, the new jazz London generation started playing. So the Nubai Garcia would be there, bands like United Vibrations, who was Yusuf Days's first band that he had with his brothers. Um, <coughs> lots of others started off in that scene. So it was quite an exciting, vibrant time to be in London and lots of young people doing exciting stuff. So I started playing with them. And then through Honest Johns, through just being out, through my love of music, through the connections that I made organically in that way, just sort of like people would offer me to play here and there, starting at NTS also, you know, fueled that. And I, I can't, it just sort of, it just happened quite organically, I'd say.
0: So what what was the first thing in music and and your creative life that started to happen first where you, where you kind of felt like you could earn a living from it I mean I know you're honest johns obviously um I mean, that that's like a major factor because it's like being at a school, isn't it, when you're working in a record store like that? I mean, can, can you tell me a little bit just about starting to work there actually and, and learning because, you know, people that work at places like Honest John's are like oracles. <laughs> I wasn't. I was not
1: when I started. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, my mum used to live in Nabrut Grove, so I would pop in regularly. And um, I got to know Budgie, who is, you know, the amazing uh, hip hop producer, who is the son of Alan, who runs Honest Johns. So we kind of got friendly. He was moving to, about to move to America to start this sort of long journey that he's been on in his career, which has culminated in him you know, working with Kanye West, although we don't talk about Kanye West. But um, (laughs) anyway, when he left, he offered me his job in a kind of very serendipitous thing. He was just like, do you want to take my job? And I was like, yes, but also terrified because of this reputation of, you know, these establishments. And, you know, I was sort of wondering, can I step up to the mark? Um, And um, when I first got in there, I think I felt like I had to know everything. So I was trying to sort of, you know, I I I was trying my best to sort of impart the limited knowledge that I had. And at some point, I realized actually this is an opportunity to learn. The people that come into this shop have been correct, you know collecting reggae or spiritual jazz or even you know even house and techno for probably like 30 40 years how could i possibly surpass their knowledge actually i'm just going to take this as an opportunity to absorb their knowledge listen to as much as i can in the shop and just give genuine recommendations on like my taste and also i worked midweek when it was quite quiet so some days you know i would literally just be there you know putting cd after cd record after record just sort of um, yeah filling myself with as much music as, as possible so it was a yeah it was an incredible an incredible
0: place to be how, how long were you working there? I think I
1: worked there about four years in total. Yeah. And then for, even after I left, I was doing, you know, cover shifts where I just go back and do a few days or do a week here and there. And it kind of, you know, my mum comes into the shop, like it really became a kind of family. It's a, still a family today. And it's like, a, yeah, yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice place.
0: <laughs> it's Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a proper institution in a, in an area of London that kind of it's obviously become very, very gentrified over the years, and and that area of Portobello is kind of holding on to a to a past that has disappeared, isn't it?
1: Well, that's the thing; it is still very much there. That's one thing that I love about West. That's one thing that I love about going back there. It's like even amidst all the gentrification and the sort of seriously yuppie stuff that's going on up on Goldburn Road and stuff, like places like Honest John's, sort of they lock in this like original. Com- the original community is still there, and actually as much as it was about the music working there, it was also just about these characters that would walk in. I mean, there was this guy called Tony who unfortunately passed away. He used to to come in every single day and he just wore the same kind of long black overcoat every day and he'd just loiter in the counter, on the counter. And he had an incredible selection of like old school, two steps, sole seven inches that he'd just like travel, you know, carry around in big big suitcases. And, you know, when I first first started working at the shop, He was kind of like, who's this young ting? And I'd be playing my spiritual jazz and he'd be giving me the side eye. But eventually, you know, we became friends and it was, you know, there were so many characters like that who were just unique. And it was the music that drew them into that space. And you never knew who was going to walk in, walk in the door. And you might have quite an emotional you know intimate moment with someone as they list- they found this record they've been looking for for years and it's bringing back memories of their childhood or you know as you know music is this incredible sort of vessel or way into quite you know it, deeply emotional spaces and memory so that was also a really impar- important part of of working at the shop with the stories as well that you'd hear and the people who came in
0: i mean you the 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 more you hang out in record stores the more you feel like there's a there's an incredible sitcom waiting to happen, isn't there? Like a Desmonds based in a <laughs> record store uh, because just there are so many eccentric people that work and run. Record stores. I, I remember one time um, when uh, th- the producer, Dave Lee, was. Co- I was living in New York at the time, and, and he came over to stay with me, and I took him to this, I'm not going to name this guy because he's still around, but a, a well-known person in New York had opened this record store, essentially to sell his own collection. And we spent a couple of hours in there, and Dave picked a couple of records, and he went to the counter to pay for them, and he kind of looked at them, and he pored over them, and he's like yeah sorry I can't sell you those (laughs) (laughs) he he obviously becomes so attached to his records he couldn't bear to part with them and yet he had a record store store specifically to sell them I think you have
1: to be a bit mad to spend your life kind of you know just obsessively hunting for more and more and more and more and you know I don't think it's any coincidence that John, the original John Clare, who set up Honest John's, you know, went on to become a psychotherapist, and he kind of puts it down to these sort of conversations that he'd have with people over the counter through music, and that also it became, you know, it was a refuge for people who were sort of going through difficult stuff. Sometimes people in the midst of sort of psychological breakdowns would come in, and you know, we had a few kind of different loonies that were that would come in on the regular and be like, "Oh, there's the headbanger, there's the da, da, da. and you know, they were safe in that space, and we t- and we sort of let them be there. We let them listen to a few tunes and. You know, it is. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, it's definitely madness in the in in the record shops. Is definitely uh, something that
0: someone should pitch it. I spe- I mean, do, do do you see a connection between uh, things like autism and record collecting? Because I've often thought that people and I speak as a as a reformed record collector myself (laughs) um there's you feel quite um some of your behaviors are very spectrum-y occasionally um and I do wonder just how many people who are big collectors not just of records either but just collectors generally Mm. and hoarders um, because the, there's a fine line between a record collector or a collector and a hoarder, um, and and I sense that in myself. In the past, I'm just wondering whether, whether having worked at a record store, you kind of sense those things.
1: I mean, de- I mean, definitely. I mean, for some people, it's a life's work, and they spent their whole life obsessing. But you know, like for me, it was the reggae collectors were the most nutty because they do you know all these different versions that they'd be looking for. But then there was this version, and there's the version where there's this cut where the flute comes in ten seconds later, and. If you got that one, and oh no, this isn't, and you know, there's there's there is such a kind of meticulous cataloging that goes on. That is, yeah. That if I think as I think it's not specific to records, I think that people have that collector tendency, and it's about you know succeeding or ticking the box or you know sort of making your way through this kind of eternal quest or search for you know for things whether it's stamps or trains or whatever you know that will never be completed but that you know i don't know. there's definitely i think yeah you could definitely say there were kind of spectrum like autistic traits in there or you know maybe it's for some people it's a, it's a way of it's a coping mechanism isn't it it's kind of like a control it gives you a structure if i get this then i will feel happy oh wait no i need to get this one you know i'm sure you know psychologists have sort of done studies on collectors and found that <laughs> there's definitely some weird stuff going on <laughs>
0: <laughs> but basically they need help <laughs> <laughs> um, out of all the work you do which which gives you the most amount of fun and the most amount of satisfaction mm. good question because I'm at
1: a sort of period in my life where I'm doing a bit too much and I'm a little bit overwhelmed and I need to really ask, I need to really sort of figure that out because I can't do it all. So there's different forms of satisfaction, there's different things that appeal to different parts of me. You know, I get a lot of satisfaction from researching an idea and finding themes and finding little connections or that kind of, that thing that happened back then, it's kind of similar to this thing that happened to 10 years later and, you know, stories and research gives me a kind of deep sense of satisfaction when I'm making connections. Um, and that appeals to that rational intellectual part of the brain that I was talking about. But, you, but also I can get in a wormhole with that and I need to balance it out with just the sort of, you know, going and just partying with friends or being on a dance floor and, when it go, when it go, when it's going well, you know, when when it's that gig where there is a magic and you're in tune and the audience is tuned and you can take risks and you're in the flow, like that is a, such a magical feeling that can't be. Yeah, it almost can't be described. And I think if it, can I choose between the two? I don't wanna just be like a book bod boffin who's just like locked away in a bedroom, researching weird things that you know, make megaliths that were built, you know, 5,000 years ago, nor do I wanna be uh, in the club every weekend. I think that's why I've chosen this sort of like mixed up mash up sort of career because I can't choose. I'm very indecisive. So I refuse to answer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, you know, I, I do three or four different things and I kind of, I do like the variety of not being pinned down because you, the, you, you get varying levels of satisfaction from the different things you do. But, but I think the immediacy of DJing it is very hard to match for creating incredible moments uh, that, that I don't think you can really match in other walks of life. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's like the pinnacle of anything you can mm. do by any means, but just that, that kind of the, the rush, I suppose, that you get from DJing and, cr- and creating special moments for people, uh, I think is, is pretty unmatch- unmatchable for being in the moment.
1: So is that for you, is that the thing that gives you the most satisfaction out of all the things you do?
0: No, no, no. I I, I mean, that's the thing. It's, um, I mean, I, I really, you know, having written some books mm. that have stayed in print a long time that people like and respect and stuff, that's a, an incredible feeling. I never would have imagined when Frank and I wrote those books that people would still be buying them now and stuff like that. So you know that that's incredible so th- there's a lot of different levels of satisfaction mm. I'm on about the hit of a high that Ooh. you get from DJing is very difficult to it's match an,
1: it's an instant hit it's an instant hit while well, the sort of scholarly work is a more of a slow burn isn't it but I, I don't know I, I think increasingly what I'm feeling is that like the world's fucked and how can I how can I help how can I really help? And how can I use my skills and my tools in the best way to sort of help? And and I and I don't for me personally, I don't know if DJing is that. So as I'm thinking more about that, I'm finding perhaps a bit less satisfaction in the DJing. And I'm kind of feeling like, how can I change things? And for me, I think that's through more of that kind of intellectual work, the ideas making people think differently. But you know, I think all, I think all these things come together. I think sometimes when you're trying to just hit people with ideas in a kind of very right on on the nose way it doesn't always go it sometimes you need to sort of ease things with these other tools you know with the music or with subtly you know I think a lot of the music that I've play or like to play you know has sort of subliminal positive messages or you know they're kind of maybe a bit spiritual not not like you know I'm trying to convert people on the radio and thing like that but you know there's there's the sort of energy in the music that I choose that is also out there trying to work on people and change people so I, I just I think multiple tools as you can tell I'm not very good at sort of choosing any one thing
0: yeah i i, I get what what you mean i mean I, i've often struggled with the fact that um on on the face of it i think djing is quite um mindless in some ways <laughs> uh, it's kind of more hedonistic and mindless for for want of a better description although i like you i've always tried to sort of play really positive music mm. and and send positive messages out there um but and also my, my parents did, like, practical... Job. My mum was a, an NHS nurse for the whole of her career, mm. and I just think, what am I actually contributing to society with my stupid interest in music? <laughs> and I, you, obviously, that sounds like a, a, an internal battle that, that you have too. And, but, but I do think that, like, making people happy mm. is an incredible privilege, really, that people come to you like it's some kind of weird surgery on, <laughs> a, on a Saturday night. Na- I'm gonna a, make you happy. <laughs> <laughs> on a Saturday night and they, and you know, your job is essentially to make them forget about all of the awfulness of the world.
1: Mm, well, but yeah, but is that forgetfulness useful? And I think also times have changed. You know, DJing has changed a lot as you well know. And I think that maybe the spaces that we find ourselves in now or the types of people that we end up playing to or the sort of function of the DJ in society has maybe changed from how it was 20, 30 years ago. And maybe we're still, maybe like there's a memory of that real power and force that it has had. But I find that a lot, and sometimes I do connect to that, but I find like a lot of times when you're playing like in quite a commercial club and everyone's just like, you know, they're just there because it's Saturday night. They're not necessarily there because they really care about the music. Or you know, sometimes you can feel like that magic or that power is, is sort of not as dormant. It's not actually doing its work. And you know, how do you how do you make it do its work? How do you choose the gigs where you feel like it is going? to... You know, it's it's quite difficult to, to to
0: to figure that out. So so, do you think it's crap now compared to how it used to be? <laughs> I wasn't there <laughs> back
1: in the old days. No, but you know, when you think about. Um, I think the commercialization of DJ culture. I mean, it was interesting. I did an interview with DJ Sprinkles, and and like you know, they were quite sort of critical of contemporary DJ, DJ culture and DJ as rock god, and you know, all of that kind of side of things. And that has perhaps changed that sort of more DIY underground, visceral, sort of body to body kind of organic. Energy that perhaps there was back in the day, but you know, I wasn't, I wasn't there. You tell me, has it has it changed for the better, or is it, you know, is that power as 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 potent as it once was, the power to change and transform people, or is it kind of dwindled?
0: I I think it is there, but but yeah, it's obviously buried under a mound of terrible stadium gigs by <laughs> by people that look like Polish plumbers. <laughs> So there is that aspect of it that obviously I don't think, you know, I think anyone playing in a stadium or or these dreadful, you know, has seen the classical tight nights. I don't think any of that has anything to do with DJing really. Mm. I do think it is very much about small rooms of people gathering together. And and once you get out of that into bigger arenas, even at festivals, it's not necessarily really what DJing is. It's a performance, but, but not in I mean, what I love about DJ is that symbiotic relationship between you and a dance floor. Yeah. And I think you need a relatively contained space in order to, to work that kind of alchemy.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, actually, I think it's also been part of my trajectory. You know, the, I guess it's like the more people know about you, the bigger gigs that you get, the bigger rooms that you're playing to, the more that you get paid, you're more likely to be playing in a slightly commercial club, you kind of lose the touch of that more DIY organic, you know, those sorts of spaces that you started off playing in, and they were the reason that you loved it. And I think a lot of people go through that journey. Um, but actually, starting a night with, I've started a night with two friends, uh, Leanne Wright and Marshmallow, And, and um, we've, We've been putting on this night called Moonlighting and that has actually completely rejuvenated my love for it because we play like in this club, carpet shop. It's like 250 people max. We take it wherever we want to go. There's no expectation. There's no promoter that's like booking you and hiring you to sort of fulfill your, you know, job as a dance maker. You know, I think in terms of musical selections, I feel so much more free. A lot of the people in the dance floor are friends There's a community there. That's, I think that's that's the kind of, that's where I go to sort of reconnect with that source with that power with that sort of transformative element and just the real like just the real fun uh, of things it's quite different when you're sort of going around as a sort of jobbing DJ to sort of conjure that but when when you can sort of create that in your own space I think it's yeah it's much easier to hold on to and to sort of you know you, you create the space that you would want to be in and quite a lot of the time one of my favorite things about playing at moonlighting is actually just going and like dancing and just listening to what the others are playing and just being part of it so so yeah that that has sort of rekindled my my love perhaps how
0: how long ago did you start that
1: we started it last year so it's yeah and has it
0: always been because carpet shop is the course car off shoot yeah
1: so we've done it a few different venues we started it off at servants jazz quarters which is just around the corner from the nts studio and it's you know 90 cap it's tiny and then we then we've did a few different ones and we've just done we've got a couple coming up in the carpet shop and that was just like really nice sound really nice people diy feel not too big it's just it's like homely you feel like you're in it could be a house party and that's kind of like that's those are my favorite kinds of gigs
0: tell me about your connection to to wales because i know that you you grew up in hounslow yeah yeah. Uh, it, like for the whole of your childhood, you you were in Hounslow, or yeah. But there's, I remember when we we first met and we were talking, you, you, I remember we talked a lot about South Wales as well. What what's the connection? Is that where your dad's from?
1: Yeah, so so yeah, I grew up I grew up in Hounslow my, when I was like um 14. My mum moved to Ladbroke Grove, and but all throughout my childhood, I spent a lot of time in Wales where my grandparents lived. So they lived um, in a place called Llan, which is. Yeah, South Wales on the coast, not home place of Dylan Thomas, but where he spent a lot of time writing and wrote Under Milk Wood, like his famous radio play set. You know, he set it, he kind of based it on Larm, which is this kind of weird and wonderful, magical, mythical town full of charismatic alcoholics. And um, yeah, I spent a lot of my childhood there. I mean, things were quite difficult for me when I was growing up, my mum has mental health issues. So I think I spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time in Wales as a kind of refuge. Um, and I wasn't really aware of it at the time, but this was a kind of place where I felt free, you know, as compared to like a very urban upbringing, like under the flight path where I was only allowed to like cycle around my block of flats. In Wales, I'd just like roam free in the woods and the wilderness. And yeah, it was, it was it's a very, obviously when I turned 13, 14, I was like, I'm gonna go to Wales, I wanna smoke fags on the street corner and, you know, and whatever. Um, but as I've grown older, I've kind of recognized how kind of fundamental that, so that time spent there was and has been to me. Because
0: so. you're quite into kind of um, paganism, for want of a better description. I don't want to make it sound like you're some kind of crazy witch or whatever, but <laughs> you, you know what I mean. I, I know I wouldn't I, you know, be
1: offended even if you did.
0: <laughs> but I've listened to a few of your radio shows, and you you explore some of that in in those. And um, it is that connected to that kind of. Uh, To Wales and and growing up in that kind of... Not growing up, but spending time in that kind of rural area as compared to the city. A lot of what you do is very kind of... I don't want to say schizophrenic, but, (laughs) but, you know, there's like a...
1: Multiple elements. Yeah, yeah. uh,
0: And that's another thing that, that... Can you explain a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, no, you're right. It's true. I do. I I kind of do set up things in these binaries of kind of like you know intellectual versus the creative, or you know Wales and the rural versus the urban, or you know my own identity as you know being mixed black and Caribbean and English. So maybe that kind of dualism or that binary thing is just like part of who I am, and it's like part of the way that I see the world. Which it's definitely been my experience. Um, And wait, I've forgotten
0: your question. (laughs) <laughs> i just asking a little bit more oh, about, about how, your yeah. interest in paganism yeah. and all that kind of stuff. You know. Yeah, um,
1: I think it does come from my time in Wales. It's it's a it's a combination of things. My dad um, was in a folk band going when I was growing up, so I spent a lot of like uh, you know a lot of my childhood and teenage years bored at rehearsals while they were sort of you know practicing three part harmonies of pentangle songs um, you know so that was a that was an influence and that that kind of folk that exposure to folk music is also an exposure to this like other england and the sort of psychedelic sort of acid folk movement of the 60s. And that that was all kind of part of my musical background. So I think that was working on me, as well as being in Wales, which is like a landscape that's rich with myth and legend. You know, it's all about Merlin was born down the corner. Oh wait, no, he wasn't. He was born up here and this was his tree he used to sit up. No, 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 it was down here. And, you know, so there's a lot of that kind of Arthurian legend, as well as all the Welsh, Welsh mythology, you know, in that landscape. So I think that influenced me as well. Um, in as I've gotten older, I've kind of made a bit more sense of that because there was a sort of question of like, what? Why am I into this stuff? What's it got to do with me? Especially as like, you know, mixed race girl from Hounslow, like why? Why do I love pop pentangles, haunting melodies about cuckoos singing, singing, and you know, oh yeah, all that crap. But I think it's for me, it's to do with. You know, Britishness, and it's to do with my identity of trying to make sense of this place that I'm from, this place that I love in many ways and hate in many others. And I think the folk culture, the sort of pagan stories, the megaliths, that kind of weird you know, outsider uh, elements of British culture appeal to me because they kind of got nothing to do with the Empire, they got nothing to do with the sort of the Tories and all the horrible stuff. It's like this alternative spirit of Britain that for me is a bit of a beacon or a bit of a way into feeling connected to the place that I'm from.
0: Yeah, it's funny, I, I I was actually in a in a socialist folk group in the in <laughs> oh the nineteen eighties. <laughs> and, and and my route into folk music was really because I was a. Uh, I was a political activist um, in the Labour Party. One of my best friends was a striking miner in the 1980s. And so I got into it through through like Dick Gochan albums and mm. Christy Moore. And there's just so much protest music and folk music. And, and I found that really interesting that they'd be singing about the diggers and um, the toll of martyrs and all of these kind of working-class heroes from hundreds of years ago. So I I, I get what you mean. It's kind of away from folk music. It's kind of away, even though it's actually quite white and middle-class nowadays. It's not really rooted in the working class anymore, which it used to be. But but I like the fact that it was kind of away from the power structures of British music and, and British society in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of these old folk songs. Yeah, we sort of, most people will associate folk with the Nick Drakes and the Pentangles and although actually Jackie McShee was a working class girl from Catford, but you know, this sort of very middle class Uh, folk revival but you know a lot of these songs are songs you know they're, they're the stories of people who've been sort of marginalized and oppressed through you know for centuries in the UK who didn't have access actually to recording their stories or their experiences in any other way but through song and that these songs you know telling stories as you say of of kind of radical Figures of of protest, of struggle, of of resistance. You know, songs about you know poachers being sent off to the gallows for trying to feed their families and whatever. You know, these these sort of heroic acts that are remembered in these songs. So absolutely, there there is that kind of that there's there's a whole alternative history of Britain that is sort of enshrined or remembered in in folk music. And maybe you know when you sort of hear you know, sort of contemporary doodly doodly folk yeah, that sort of great highly produced and you know that the guy went to Eton or whatever. It's kind of lost that radical aspect, but it, that, the roots are there. And I think, yeah, as an alternative history of Britain, as an alternative vision, as alternative symbols and anthems of Britain, these are the things that I look to. I mean, as well as other things, but.
0: I mean, yeah. I, if you look at it realistically um, now, uh, grime is much nearer to British folk, modern British folk music than folk music is, because it's really about marginalised kids expressing their feelings in different ways, and, and I don't think anyone does that more forcefully than grime artists.
1: Absolutely. And when you listen, you know, actually just the other day I was list, I was like on, on a little bit of a YouTube hole, um, looking at, you know, JME Skeptor's brothers, like early productions and, you know, just reading up about them. And he just had Fruity Loops on his computer and he's doing all these sort of like, you know, Game Boy-esque productions. And it's so basic, so DIY. And yet it was, it was radical, it was incredible. And like, it's this, when you listen to like Dizzy Rascal's first album, just like, wow, it's mind blowing. It's actually mind blowing, incredible, amazing. Uh, experimental challenging fun bombastic aggressive music that is completely an expression of of, as you say the sort of contemporary marginalized people living in the UK like sharing sharing their experiences Um, it's just and I guess with the the genesis of and the, the journey of grime you can look at it in the same way of folk that these things kind of they start off radical and they get they get watered down and they get kind of fed to the masses and they become skewed by commercial interests and then a new form will come up and spring up and that's like the beauty of music isn't it that those sorts of cycles and that's kind of what fascinates
0: me about music um how how do we avoid that kind of being sucked into the machine
1: i don't think you can avoid i think that's just i think that's just what happens i think things can only stay radical and potent for so long it's like that kind of radical spirit can only exist in a a genre a movement a scene a a, you know a place for so long before it has to it's it's kind of by its nature, it is ever-changing. I don't think you can... It's like this. It's like there's the old myth of, you know, the sort of the hero who comes out and stands against the, the oppressive emperor of, of his time or whatever, and he's got all these new ideas, and then he becomes the emperor himself, and then he becomes sort of stayed and wants to hold on to power, and then a new hero emerges to kind of break down that system. That just seems to be like a fundamental sort of part of being human and the way that we kind of move and operate and ideas kind of come through and yeah i don't know if you can change it i don't know if you can hold on to hold on to that radical spirit without it becoming somehow stagnant what do you think
0: I I tend to agree with you, I I think the kind of dialectics of music and society mean that things are constantly in flux anyway, that there's an inevitable change and churn in what's happening all the time. So I I think, you know... um, I think you know if you want to be involved in music it, uh, uh, and stay independent, it's actually it's incredible. It's incredibly difficult. First, it's incredibly difficult just making a living from music mm. and sustaining a living from music. I mean, that's probably my greatest achievement is that I've been involved in earning a living from music for like more than thirty years, mm. and and. I, I I still can't believe that I've managed to do it because because it, it is it's really difficult. Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't really know what the answer to that is at all. I was asking maybe you have some ideas, <laughs> just help me see me through to my retirement.
1: <laughs> I mean, in terms of like scenes and genres and things, I think you know the energy of the, it kind of go things go underground and overground, don't they? And so I don't think I think it's just the the energy maybe shifts elsewhere it becomes less visible it doesn't mean the kind of the scene or the genre dies but I think I think yeah I don't unfortunately I don't I don't have the answer it's making me think of the UK garage documentary that I made and again it was I interviewed a lot of the old old legends Mm -hmm. who were kind of coming from that rave perspective you know they'd 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 grown up on the sort of rave scene and for them UK garage was all about upliftment it was about hedonism it was about escapism it was like a love vibe you know and they were in they were kind of they were sort of bringing that that kind of acid house kind of mentality into uk garage and they felt that when the new gen of ukg performers and artists like so solid crew and other mcs started to come onto the scene and bringing that gritty reality you know that folk that folk element you're talking about that kind of Life is fucking hard. We're on the streets. This is how we deal with it: spitting their reality into this, you know, hedonistic scene. The elders didn't like it, and they were like, "This is what. This isn't what it's about. It should be about love, and you know, just you know, getting dressed up and looking sexy on the weekend, and staying out for four nights, and you know, you know, drinking or drugging your problems away." And they, there was this resistance to this change, um, and so I just think that. It's it's unstoppable, and well, we wouldn't want it to stop changing because it always gives birth to new forms. You know, then after that, when obviously all of the UK, you know, after that, once UK garage kind of become became immersed in this sort of violence and it kind of got shut down, um, dubstep emerged, and so you wouldn't want it to stop. You yeah. want it to keep finding new pathways and creating new sounds, and that's that's like the joy of of sort of 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 being a lover of music and. Witnessing those shifts.
0: How how did you find putting together a a, a history of a genre like that? Because obviously, myself and my partner Frank Broughton have done. I've done a lot of that over the years, and and. Uh, when you do it, you really start to appreciate how messy history is, and <laughs> and that there are no, there are often not really any defined, neat narratives because you've got five people arguing about who did what when. <laughs> uh, I'm just wondering whether especially you, especially when they're DJs. <laughs> I, I, I'm just wondering whether you found that when you were doing that story for Boiler Room.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a uh, it was pitched to me. I thought sort of, it was pitched to me as a, a history of UK garage. Originally, they wanted to make two podcasts: one that was like the history, and one that was. Women in UK garage, and I was like, "Well, why would why should we ghettoize and separate these things? These things should be enmeshed." So off I went, and I, still have, I had this sort of list of numbers and people to call, and da, 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 da. and the soon it became evident that you know there were various different people who were trying to sort of manipulate the story to to say, "Oh no, it started here in South London." Oh no, no, it actually started here in, in East London, or you know, who's who? Who was the first one to pitch it up to, to ten? You know, and speed up the beats or whatever. You know, everyone had their own contesting version um one of the good things about working in audio is that you you know you're you you're working with people you're working with voices that the audience is then hearing so they're aware this is this one person's view and you can lay that next uh, you know alongside another and mm. you can just sort of put place pieces of information or audio or stories or anecdotes alongside one another and kind of allow the listener to make uh, their own, to mind, make their own up. mind up yeah. you're not having to author it in that way of like it started here you're not in, in a sense maybe it uh, kind of suits my personality where i'm finding it hard to commit to anything <laughs> because it's not my voice i'm just sort of creating this constellation and people can uh you know find their history or find their kind of you know what makes sense to them through it but yeah it was challenging it was challenging managing the egos was was chan- was challenging was a big part of it and also going in search of those female voices i think that was one of the most gratifying things about doing it because these there were lots of women who were really not recorded like when you're doing your research um online or going through old magazines or journalistic articles about the scene, um, there were so many people that didn't get a message, <coughs> so they didn't get a mention, um, but then once you started making phone calls, you'd, you'd hear these names being repeated, like these were people that were fundamental to the scene, um, and just actually getting the opportunity to then re them into this history was like really, was um, something I felt quite proud of and, and happy about, so.
0: You're listening to to the DJ History Podcast Podcast with with Bill Brewster. Brewster. Has the position of women in the DJ culture changed much while you've been involved? Are there more opportunities? Is it more open now?
1: I think it's hard for me to get that full perspective because I think that I've sort of started playing at around a time where there was a sort of recognition that there was like an absence of, of women um, so I I feel like I've been very lucky um, to not really encounter too much of that kind of discrimination. I play it often on lineups that do feel very varied. I've had a few experiences where I know that I'm the token woman on the thing and also, uh, on the lineup and not only that, but I felt it in the space, you know, that that I haven't actually been very respected by the other male DJs there and then kind of they haven't posted about me when they've done the recap and they've only posted about the men and I'm like, okay, right, yeah, yeah, cool, whatever. <laughs> um, but in general, I think that, yeah, I, I, I haven't seen it change much because i don't think i was there to see it when it was really bad right. but that's also within our within the sort of scene that i am in which is quite i would say quite a generally quite a progressive scene as things go as soon as you start to look at like bigger festival lineups and stuff like that you can see that you know that change hasn't reached certain um, aspects of the sort of music scene but i would say from my experience anyway i think i can't complain has it ch- i mean it must have changed a lot since you've been playing
0: yeah an incredible amount um I, yeah I mean, there obviously have always been women. I, I I used to mainly go to gay clubs in the late eighties and early nineties, and certainly in gay clubs there were more women there than women, and most of them were straight actually, but they were more welcome mm. in the gay community than they were in the straight, you know, on straight clubs. So there, there were several that I used to go and. Uh, see, but yeah, generally, it w- it really would be the token woman mm. uh, for for many many years, probably two decades, really. Mm. And it's only re- I'd say it's only really changed in the last six or seven years. Mm. I'd say prior to that, it wasn't really very different at all for like almost thirty years. Mm. Um, what what do you think makes a a good DJ or a bad DJ?
1: <laughs> Obviously, there are kind of there are there are different layers to it. There's Obviously, selection and that comes down to taste whether we can be objective about someone's, you know, good or bad. I think we can be a bit, but you know, selection and that also bringing back to what we were talking about before, you know, someone's ability to take risks, you know, not just stick within what they usually play, not just stick within a kind of grid or a format that is safe, but to actually like take risks and you know, be willing to maybe lose their Mm. audience for a few tracks by going in a different direction and that, you know, like I think risk-taking, your selection, your depth of musical knowledge. Um, empathy, I think is quite important as a DJ. Your ability to sort of tune in to an audience and what is working for them and what isn't. And to sort of, to, to read the room. And not in a sense of, I'm just gonna play what they want me to play. But you do, you have to be quite tuned in and you have to be sort of quite connected to, to, to sort of lock into that flow, that symbiosis that, that you described. Um, obviously, there are technicals. Like, if you don't have to be great at mixing, but smooth transitions are helpful. You know, some I know some amazing DJs who who's you know selections are incredible and on point. And um, yeah, you want there to be smooth transitions. You don't want to be clanging and jarring because that those are the things that kind of break a mood, aren't they? Um, but yeah, I th- I think I think it's a combination of all those things. I think like my favourite DJs are people that take risks, and sometimes I wish I could be more bold and take more risks because, you know, b- building a groove up and then being w- willing to smash it all down and just you know create create a whole new a whole new vibe. I, I get bored when people just play the same kind of tempo or the same kind of rhythm or the same kind of beat. So I think for me, you know, the foundations are good mixing or good transitions, great musical taste, but yeah, the thing that elevates it is that reading the room and knowing what that moment where you can there's a, where you can so su- subtly change the energy or bring it all the way down or peak it up or whatever. I think that's I think it's the kind of combination of those things.
0: Uh, have you got any? Can you remember of any examples of people that have kind of not smashed it down but just <laughs> like really ch- really changed the atmosphere in the room by the kind of records that they've changed, uh, you know, the the direction they've changed in and stuff like that
1: yeah i mean i think well actually a dj that that influenced me quite a lot was um was alex Nutt for that for his kind of um he plays a lot of different genres and he is obviously a really amazing smooth at mixing but also sometimes he's just like really happy to just kind of just you know it's not it's not this sort of like i've got to keep it locked in the groove i've got to make sure that it stays here it's not that kind of sort of Precision kind of DJing. It's like he was willing to. He was willing to then find other means to completely switch up the vibe and just that that boldness. I think um, I've, I've loved seeing him play. I remember seeing Josie Rebel for the first time. Not so much in the like changing up the mood, but just her she's kind of immaculate in the way that in her 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 selection is incredibly on point like not knowing one single track that she's played in like a 3 hour long set it's mixed impeccably and she does it like with such a light touch like there's no there's no performance there's no big whoop whoop hands in the air it's just like hardcore just laying it down it's really inspiring to see to see her play um and and also like you know very far reaching selections but yeah those are the ones those are the two that come to mind
0: who and when was the first really good DJ you, you ever saw? Um, and did, did it shape your view of what DJs were capable of?
1: I'm trying to think. Um, early days. Um, I'm thinking, to be honest, I'm thinking more
0: spaces and dance floors actually than, than DJs. So, so, like, can can you give a few examples of
1: that? Yeah. Um, playing, um, sorry, going to a co-op party for the first time. Uh, plastic People. That no, one. I miss the Plastic pe- right. People era. It was, I think this was one that they did probably, like, eight or nine years ago in uh, Hoxton Basement or somewhere around there. And um, it was... It was the. It was obviously that that music. I love. I love that music because it's just. It's kind of meant It's actually mental. <laughs> it's kind of so fragmented and sort of otherworldly and space age. It's very. It feels very London. It's. It's yeah. It's a music that I. It's kind of soulful and obviously has its sort of lineages in the jungle and stuff. It's just yeah. I, I. I love that music, but there was something about. It was more about the the dance floor. Actually, it was. It was the combination of what they were playing, but then dancers on the dance floor I like the the broken beat scene obviously brings about a lot of like serious professional dancers and they're there encouraging you to really really dance you know they create dance circles and you're like okay my little side to side shuffle is not going to do it I need to step up to the plate, and like that that atmosphere of joyful, people seriously, seriously dancing, multi-generational, you know, a lot of these people, they were following that scene like 20 years ago and they're still out today, as well as like the new gen, the, the youngers of which I was one then yeah that 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 was quite that was sort of a magical dance floor moment and experience and in a way like the DJ was less significant it was more about being on the floor it was about being the people who were there it was you know and I in a way I think that's how it should kind of be Um, I know it doesn't answer your question but um that those sort of dance those sort of intergenerational dance floors have been have been like they've sort of taught me a lot about what what a party should be and and the sort of parties that I want to be at and that I'd like to sort of create for myself. Dingwalls is another one actually, even though it's quite specific musically and not everyone wants to go listen to jazz all afternoon, but same combination, jazz dancers, intergenerational, you know, vast musical spectrum. And just like a kind of Sunday afternoon vibe where people aren't like off their heads, people are really present. And it's there's a a magic that happens in those sorts of spaces. More like, I think more professional dancers on the dance floor. Maybe I should hire a troupe to follow me around when
0: I play. (laughs) Like Bruce Forsyth. you could be the new Bruce Force. Yes,
1: unlikely icon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> where where are where are the best parties that you've played at? I mean, where, where are the most exciting clubs and cities and spaces?
1: I think some of some of my fa- some of my favorite gigs have been in Berlin. I'm playing in like a queer place that's no longer around. It was called Cake and it was sort of in this uh, disused office building and it was on the 5th floor or whatever and it was just the the energy there was very, very different to it. I think it was my first time playing in, in, in Berlin and it was very different to a London dance floor, a way less self-conscious, way more kind of free, quite kind of free love vibes. You know, everyone just kind of a bit, kind of gropey, but in a nice way. <laughs> Wait no, I'm gonna get cancelled mm. for saying that.
0: Uh, given, given the fact we're recording this in the, with the shadow of Russell Brand, no, know.
1: not um, sensual. I'll say not gropy but in a nice way. Sensual dance floor. Um, that was that was a, that was a really amazing space to play in, and it just yeah. I mean, people could talk about the Berlin thing, but I think that was when I kind of really experienced it for the first time it's like a different way of clubbing and people don't people aren't sort of sloshy and messy in the same way that they are in like a in a, in a, Brit, in a British club at 1 a.m. it's a sort of there's a different atmosphere and people are way more present and tuned in um, one of my favorite gigs that I've played in um, in the UK was actually in Leeds um i forgot the name of the party but again it's like i think for me the best ones are out of london it's like where there's it feels like there's an established community that like party together kind of regularly there's connections on the dance floor people know each other they're hugging each other they're smiling they're seeing their friend over the other side and you know playing for that kind of crowd's very different to a sort of fragmented london crowd where everyone's just come from anywhere and anywhere and there's maybe groups of Two or three that know each other, but it's not a unified scene. I think, though, I think, I think that that kind of taught me again something about what makes what what gives a dance all that special magic energy. And when you go into it as a DJ, what allows your work to sort of take light, to sort of to lift off, or to you know, to light that spark.
0: okay what one more question I'm just wondering how I mean you, you're of an age that grew up in a, in a digital world I'm wondering how how important all of that is in terms of promotion and and how much have we lost from the kind of organic way of promoting in the old days I, I, I appreciate that maybe you don't have as much experience of that but how, how important is your digital life to you
1: oh, it's a it's a curse it's yeah it's a curse it's uh i find that element quite difficult obviously you have to promote your what you do you don't want to upset lovely promoters who've booked you and they obviously want the nights to do well and so you think okay I, I ought to do it but yeah i i think it i think the sort of constant self promotion can just feel a bit empty and a bit a bit like yeah it doesn't feel great all of the time and also, I can't. Sometimes I think, like, is it my job to promote, or is it someone else's job to promote? You know, I'm. I would. Lo- I'm gonna do my job. I'm gonna turn up. I'm gonna, you know, make sure I bring some incredible music. I'm gonna like, you know, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do my job, which I see is to come, to prepare and to come and deliver like a really good set. I don't necessarily see my job of having to like push tickets and all the rest of it. I'm happy to like share and talk about the things that I'm doing. But when people start to hassle me about that and like, oh, could you post this or written into my contract that I have to do at least this post and that I really really I kind of I really resist that because I just think you know I don't want I don't I don't like being told what to do but especially I don't like you know that sort of pressure about something that to me I don't see as my job um but the other the the positive side of it is you know being on Instagram you know you do have it's nice to sort of connect with people who follow you, and it's nice to sort of make make pe- maybe maybe your audience less sort of anonymous, and you know you recognise people that come to your gigs or they listen to you on the radio, and then they maybe send you a message or they've heard a song that they like, and you you know that kind of instant connection can also be quite nice. But I do I do find the sort of promotion element quite quite laborious at times and there's a little kind of like annoyed sort of toddlerish reaction i sometimes have when i'm told i need to post like well i'm not going to then and then i do a bit later
0: (laughs) sorry sorry. one 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 last question actually about uh, you've been involved in nts quite a long time and i'm just wondering what it feels like to be part of a of a, a kind of a community that's kind of really shaped sort of london in the way that kiss did 30 years ago um uh, h- how long have you been involved in NTS?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about this um, the other day because um, a dear, a, a dear friend and one of the producers at NTS called Josh. He he left recently, and uh, when he left, I was like, oh, you know, we've known each other for you know eight years, and I've probably seen you once a week for, for eight years, which is more than I see a lot of my friends. So I was reflecting on this because I started, before I had my own show on NTS, I was working as a producer, like not long after I finished uni, I hit them up and, you know, I was working for free. I produced like Cherry Stone's show and a few others. So I think it's probably, I've, I've been doing my own show for coming up to eight years, so it's probably been nine or 10 years. So that's been like a massive chapter of my life, growing up with these people and um, developing with the station. Yeah, I, I mean, I I can't, I, I love NTS and I feel very grateful to be a part of what feels like a family. And I know sometimes when you go to sort of NTS events or you kind of see, there's a bit of a trendiness at, as associated to it, it's a very hipstery station or it has come come to that. But the actual people that I know and work with on a day-to-day level at NTS are just like, all really, really lovely down to earth, humble people who just fucking love music. So I feel very um, grateful to be a part of that. And also to have been able to sort of grow my own sound and radio kind of persona in a very organic way with no rules and no sort of, oh, you should do it like this or not having to think about numbers or anything. Just it's a very, it's a free space. So I think that for me, that's been, yeah, I feel proud to be part of it and I feel very lucky to just sort of have had free reign to sort of figure it out for myself without anyone telling me what to do. though uh, <laughs> you might listen to my radio radio shows and think she could have probably done with a bit of, with a bit of that but no I, I think it's uh, I, long may, long may it live long may it go on.
0: That's brilliant. thank you. It's taken us a while to get together to do this but but it was worth the wait. thanks. Thank you. thank you. Thanks for listening to the DJ History Podcast. If you enjoy these interviews, it would help us enormously if you could rate or leave reviews for our show. Also, if you're on social media, we'd appreciate it if you could increase the love by sharing these shows to your followers. We don't have a big budget to promote these, so we're relying on you to help us get the word out. Big love from the DJH crew.